Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Great. It's great to see you. Turn, in your, if you would, in your scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I have a question that I want to ask you, just kind of a little evaluation question, maybe about yourself, maybe about someone else. But just answer this question, just kind of think this through a little bit. Are you more of a thinker or a feeler? Which one do you lean towards? Are you more of a thinker or a feeler? It might be easier to answer that question if you're answering about your spouse or about your best friend or maybe your mom or dad. Are you more of a thinker or a feeler? For example, all weekend long I kept thinking I should have some kind of dessert and the thinker side of me said, if you're going to have dessert, you should have a fruit cup. But the feeler inside me said, no, what you really need is about three gallons of Brahms chocolate almond ice cream. Which one won? The feeler won inside me this weekend. I had lots of ice cream this weekend, and it was wonderful. Um, the thinker, uh, if you ask a thinker to go with the flow, hey, thinker, I want you to go with the flow. They're going to look at you with this puzzled face, and they'll be saying, yeah, I'm happy to go with the flow. If you would maybe just tell me what time will the flow start? And what should I wear? And do I meet you there or do you pick me up? Exactly how does this flow thing work? And, and the feeler, well, the feeler just hops in the car and they may not end up where they intended to be, but somehow they end up where they're needed and just good things happen. I'm not sure exactly how that works. The difference between thinkers and feelers, even on our staff, we have thinkers and feelers. Brad Ayler always walks into staff meeting and he's got long spreadsheets filled with numbers. And he's like, the numbers tell us we should. And Chris is like, let me get my phone real quick. And he's texting somebody. I just feel like we ought to go do this. My gut's telling me this is the right thing. You know, my gut's right a lot. See, we've got thinkers and feelers on our staff too. You've experienced that before, right? So which one are you? Are you the thinker or are you the feeler? You see, we have a value in our church, and that value is that we build our lives on God's Word. There's a truth here that is just really significant. And one of the things that Scripture tells us is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So at some level, whether you lean towards being the thinker or lean towards being the feeler, and truthfully, we're all a little bit of all of it at different times, right? When you go to buy that car, you're looking for all of the economical reasons, like it's small and it gets great gas mileage. That's the thinker. And then the feeler's like, but it's a two-ton pickup truck that you can hear from three miles away. I need that, you know? And so you can find a reason to justify your feelings or to feel your justification. You can always do that. So we're all a little bit of all of it. But Scripture says we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is a way for the things we think and the way we feel to honor God. And we have this value here that when God's Word speaks clearly, we're going to do what God's Word says. I mean, we who are followers of Christ, I mean, if you're really a Christ follower, then we should follow what this book says when it tells us what we should do. And so there's a value here that I think is really important. And what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today is just this remarkable place where thoughts and feelings experience and reason, where those two things meet in a way that lives on top of and honors Scripture as the foundation of everything. 
And so because we like to honor the reading of God's word uh, when we do that, I'm going to say, if you would, stand with me so that we can honor the reading of God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18 as an act of worship. When I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond, praise be to God. So uh, just think about that as we read this. Are you the thinker? Are you the feeler? And how, how is it that we honor God in all the things we think and all the things we feel? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it says this. For the message of the cross. Now I'm going to stop right there for just a second. I'm reading from the New King James translation. In the ESV translation, there's actually the word message. In the original language is the word logos, which means word. So in the ESV, instead of saying the message of the cross, it says the word of the cross. So I'm going to substitute that one word right there for just a second, and that's important. You'll understand that in a minute. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are called in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. So which is it? Are you more of a thinker or more of a feeler? It's really important for us to consider that today because of what we see inside this passage of Scripture. When God's word speaks clearly, we adjust our lives to what God's word says. If we're going to be Christ followers, we should follow what his word tells us to do. And I just think... That makes sense, yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see some things that the church at Corinth is going going through. Just to give you a little bit of background, the church at Corinth had written some letters to Paul to ask some questions, and if you've been keeping up with our daily Bible reading, we've been reading through 1 Corinthians. We finished up Job this week, or we read some of that this morning, and uh, and we're in the process of finishing that up, but in 1 Corinthians, they've, they've asked him some questions, and as you've read through 1 Corinthians, you realize he's really just answering some of the questions that they have. And part of the beauty of the Corinthian church is just the miracle that it was. Because 
in, in the Corinthian, in the city of Corinth, it was a Greek city, so lots of Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking people. And part of the beauty of it was if you lived in Corinth and you were rich, you didn't talk to poor people. And, and if you were nobility, you didn't talk to commoners. And if you were Greek, you didn't talk to Jews. And if you were Jews, you didn't talk to Greek. And so there was lots of segregation and lots of, lots of socioeconomic differences there. But when Christianity came along in Corinth and started getting into the hearts and to the minds of people, what we start seeing is mighty people start spending unhurried, good friendship time with people who would be considered weak by their society. Rich people and poor people were hanging out together. People from different races and different cultures and different backgrounds, they would come together for church to share the Lord's Supper with one another. They'd have these moments when someone would look up in the marketplace and realize, wait, wait, wait a minute, you, you are rich and you're treating that slave like a person. You're treating them with respect. What's that all about? God had done this remarkable thing in the hearts of those people, which is just that thing he does. He helped them realize the devastation of their sin and then drew them together. And, and as they came together, they realized it's not about rich and poor. It's not about Jew and Greek. It's not about position and power and prominence and then the other thing. It's not about that. What unites us is Christ. And so as they're bringing together all of these people, some were educated, some were uneducated, some were thinkers, some were feelers, some were Jewish, some were Greek. And you get to verse 22, and you see something really remarkable. It says that Jews, in verse 22, Jews seek after a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God for all of us who believe. Those who are perishing, it sounds like foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God as revealed through His Word that really has changed everything. And it's the reason why this diversity of people could come together to worship their Heavenly Father. They would lay aside their preferences so that they could together worship the God they love with the people they love. And it was just this beautiful expression of things. And what you see is that idea that the Jews seek a sign. Verse 22, the Jewish people seek a sign. They were seeking an experience. They were God's chosen people, and God had told them the Messiah is coming. And they, they were on the lookout for the signs that would show that Messiah was there. And then Messiah came. Messiah was Jesus. And all the signs came and all the signs went. But Jesus ended up fulfilling all of those signs not quite like they expected him to. And so whether you're a thinker or you're a feeler, there's those people who think things through. And then there's those people who trust in their experience. The Jews were looking for the right experience. And so it kind of creates a natural tension that we have to deal with. If you're someone who relies on your experience to kind of define what's right and what's wrong, if you rely on your experience to help you make all of your choices, if you go with your gut, what happens when your experiences don't match your expectations? What, what do you do with that? The Jewish people had a hard time seeing Jesus as the Messiah because their expectations with Jesus didn't match their expectations 
of a Messiah. What do you do when that happens? You see, if you've been reading Job in our daily Bible readings, you'll notice that sometimes our expectations don't match our experiences. Actually, we're a lot like Job's friends in the United States of America. We have this very American capitalistic idea of what it means to be a Christ follower, that right, if you do the right things, if you believe the right things, if you make the right choices, everything's going to be successful. You know, if you just jump through the right hoops, God's going to love you more. If you chart it on a graph, you know, everything's going to go up and to the right. Everything, ever, the future's just going to get better and it's just going to get brighter. Why? Well, because I made smart choices, because I did right things, because I was wise, because I knew what I was doing. In relationship to my faith, I had my quiet time this morning. That's why I got the good parking spot at Walmart, right? God blessed me today. If you just do the right things, God will like you more and bless you more. That's an idea that's kind of gotten into us, right? But that's not really what Scripture lays out. And then specifically, if you're someone who trusts your experience, what, what do you do with Job? That was the struggle of Job's friends. The very first chapter of Job God himself points to Job and says, hey, have you seen my boy Job? He gets it right. And everything went downhill from there. I don't know. What do you do with that? What do you do with, when you're doing all the right things and you end up unhealthy? What do you do when you do all the right things and your career doesn't go like you expect? Job was that guy. God himself said he's done all the right things. And his experience, it just didn't match his expectation. You see, there's a reality here. It's a principle that we need to catch. And it's that scripture, this book, it provides the clearest, best, most accurate way for you to process every experience. I don't know what to do when my experiences don't match my expectations. I don't. And I don't want to sound flippant when I say this, but in the middle of not understanding, I can look at God and say, God, I don't understand it. And God, I don't like it. And if I were you, I wouldn't do it this way. But God, I trust you. This book has proven time and time and time again that whether our experiences match our expectations or not, God is faithful and God can be trusted. Isn't that the entire purpose of the book of Job? What was it that Job said? My God is God. Though he slay me, I will trust him. He is God. I am not. I will honor him. And that's a hard place to be. But there is no greater truth then God is faithful and that he loves you and that God will keep his promises. And sometimes the way he does it isn't the way we expect, may not be the way we like, may not be something we understand, but God is faithful in all of those things. What do we do when our experiences don't match our expectations? We turn to scripture and we process those experiences and those feelings through the lens of a trustworthy, loving, faithful God. When I was a teenager, I was at First Baptist Church in Moore, and the associate student minister's name was Brad Davis, and his dad, Dean Davis, was also a deacon in the church. Dean eventually was the chairman of deacons at a church that I served as a student minister, but Dean also had an older boy, and the older boy I didn't know. I knew Brad because he was our assistant student minister, but I didn't know Dean's oldest son, and there's a reason for that. 
When Dean's oldest son was a student at Oklahoma Baptist University, young guy, he was there living in Brotherhood Dorm. And uh, there was a weight room in the bottom of Brotherhood Dorm. And he got up really early one morning and decided to go lift weights. And he decided to go by himself. Uh, so don't do that. Go with a weightlifting partner every time. He went by himself to lift weights, and he was doing some bench press there in the bottom of Brotherhood Dorm. Good kid. He's at OBU. He's studying to be a minister. He bit off more than he could chew, more than he could handle. And so he's all alone. And that heavy weight that he was trying to bench press rolled back on him. And he couldn't get out from under it. And he passed away. And that was tragic. And I'll never forget what Dean Davis said as he's walking through that very tragic loss of his firstborn son. At some point, he looked up, and after hearing about the death of his son, he said, my God is God, and I will serve him anyway. What do you do when your experiences don't match your expectations? You're honest with God. You filter those experiences, you measure, you process every one of those experiences through His Word. And you have the hard conversations, and you scream, and you shout, and you let Him know what you think and what you feel, because He's God and He can take it. Your anger does not intimidate Him. Your frustration does not annoy Him. And He lovingly will remind you. If you read your reading today in Job, he's lovingly reminding Job, let me show you all the things you don't know. Now watch me be faithful and love you deeply and love you intimately and walk through you, walk through these hardest of times with you. Some people seek an experience. The Jewish people, they sought a sign. It didn't match their expectations, and so they didn't know what to do. I'm saying to you, Scripture provides the clearest, best, most accurate way for you to process every experience. That's for the feelers and for the thinkers, it addresses them too. If you go on to verse 22, Greeks seek after wisdom. They, they like the spreadsheet. We actually think probably more like the Greek people of that day. We like the bullet points and the definitions. We want to know what the meaning of is, is in all of our contracts and, and all of those different things. And so we're seeking those steps. We seek after wisdom. But here's the problem. Some of the things that we know today are going to be different years from now. And some of the things we knew back in, back in days gone by are not the same today. And there's a really good example of that. I love science. I love the scientific process. That idea that by observation, I can go, well, this, this seems to be the way the world works. And I can create a theory, and then I can test that theory. And when that theory is proven over and over and over again, when it's repeatable and sustainable and memorable, I can go, oh, this must be the way the world works. That scientific process actually comes out of Scripture and has been well proven. God likes for us to investigate His world. He likes us to have those reasonable, rational steps. Actually, Scripture says He's not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos. He's logical. He's reasonable. He's rational. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
yet there's limits to what I can know. You realize 500 years ago, 500 years ago, everybody believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Now, 500 years ago, that sounds like a long time. It's almost as old as some of the people in this room. It feels like that's a long time ago. It's just not. But we thought the earth was the center of the universe. And then here comes Copernicus and Galileo. And no, it's not the earth. It's the sun. We just knew the earth was the center of the universe. And Copernicus, Galileo, Galileo, Epirasi Muove is what he said. In his, he was put on trial for it, right? I saw it move. And the end result of that was we stopped thinking that the earth was a center. Now it's the sun. And then someone else came along. Hey, it's not math. It's, not, it's just math. I don't know math, but it just says sun's not the center. It must be a galaxy. We're kind of actually out on the out, outer rim of a galaxy. But now well, it can't be that the galaxy is the center of the universe. That galaxy seems to be circling something. I know. Well, where did all this come from? Must have been a big bang. Looks like everything's expanding out, right? The big bang, we can just observe some things, right? Just looks like the everywhere we look in the night sky, things are getting further away from us. And so, man, we knew, we just knew 500 years ago the earth was the center of the universe. And today we think the big bang's the way it started scientifically. Imagine what we'll know 500 years from now. Interesting thing about the Big Bang. The theory would state that if there was a Big Bang, that you ought to be able to look into the night sky and see part of it that's hotter and part of it that's colder. But scientists can't do that. The relative temperature of the universe is basically the same. So they have a new theory that predates the Big Bang. It's called inflation or super or hyperinflation, and it's the idea that somehow in the moments just before the Big Bang, that somehow everything that would come to be was nothing and then was spread out like a giant clap all through the entire universe. I'm not sure to, about you, but that sounds like there was nothing and then God spoke and there was something. Sounds strangely like that. It seems like science might be catching up to that, right? We just knew 500 years ago the earth was the center of the universe. Imagine what you'll know 500 years from now. And here's the crazy part. Greeks seek wisdom. Look at verse 22. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And on his most foolish day, it says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And on his weakest day, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So it's not just that Scripture provides the clearest, best, most accurate way for you to process every experience. Biblical principles are the most trustworthy test of timeless truth. Biblical principles, what you see inside this book, most trustworthy test of scientific truth. Again, I, I enjoy science. Whether the earth is the center, the sun is the center, the galaxy is the center, the universe is the center, the Big Bang happened or it didn't happen, you know what science never attempts to answer? Who did all that? Whatever you think you believe about what you, serve, you, you observe, you can take one more step back, and ultimately, God did it. God's the one who made all of these mechanisms happen. There is a wisdom that exceeds 
our wisdom, and it's the wisdom of God. And on his most foolish day, when he's at his weakest and worst, he's stronger and wiser than anything you or I could possibly know. Let's be logical. Let's be reasonable. Let's recognize that the scientific process and the ability to think sequentially, step by step, is really just us looking at our Heavenly Father and going, I see how you're thinking. I'd like to see that a little bit more. And trusting in Him with what we think we know. And recognizing, wouldn't it be good in all of your decision making, wouldn't it be good if you could talk to someone who can see the beginning from the end? Wouldn't that be helpful in your decision making? Wouldn't it be helpful if you could get the advice or, 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 or learn from the wisdom of someone who when you knock down that one domino can see how all the dominoes will fall? Wouldn't that be helpful? Proverbs chapter 2 says that this book, in this book, God reveals that kind of wisdom. You have instant and eternal access to the God who sees the beginning from the end, who knows how every domino falls, the one who isn't simply the owner and operator of it all, but the one who designed it, created, created it, and perpetuates it. Whatever decision you have to make, whatever direction you think you want to go, whatever it is you think you know, imagine as you get to know the mind of Christ. Imagine what you might know tomorrow. See, there's a reason why I said in verse 18 that it's the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's a reason why I said that, because ultimately you should ask yourself this question, whose word do I trust the most? Do I trust the word of experience? Sounds reasonable. I had this experience. I know what I experienced. Based on that experience, I'm going to make these decisions. That sounds reasonable. Whose word do you trust the most? Hey, I know things. I have degrees. There's letters after my name. I've, I've studied to show myself approved. I've done, I've done things like that. I, whose word will you trust? The word of experience or the word of knowledge, the word of reason, the word of rationality? You see, the Bible says, verse 18, the word of the cross is the one that's the most trustworthy. And when Scripture talks about the word of the cross, what does that mean? Maybe it's talking about the word on the cross. Remember John chapter 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. What is the Word of the cross? It's, it's Jesus. Are you going to trust your experience more than Him? Are you going to trust your rational thinking knowledge, logic more than Him? Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. There is no experience, there is no knowledge that's higher than the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. What does Romans chapter 8 say? Doesn't it say that who can separate you from the love of God can height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, 
nor things to come. What can separate you from the love of God? It says nothing. And where did that love come from? Where was it most specifically expressed? Right there on the cross. When the word of the cross took your sin and mine, took all the punishment, took all the penalty of your sin and mine. Who, who do you trust? The word of your experience or the word of the cross or the word of your knowledge? It's the most amazing thing. Verse 23. Let's go back to 22 again. For Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And that's the remarkable truth about the gospel. That the gospel redeems our experience. And the gospel reveals the wisdom of God. That's what the gospel does. I think it's funny uh, you know, you heard me talk about science today. It's not really a TED Talk. What I'm doing up here, what Chris does up here when somebody else is preaching up here is not really a TED Talk, right? Um, I have to think about it. It talks about those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And it talks about how the, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Man, if, if you aren't a church person, if you don't really trust in Jesus, if you don't really know about this whole church thing, I have to imagine that this moment... For people who are not believers or not used to coming to church, I've got to imagine that what we do in this room seems really strange. I mean, we, we come in, we all come together, we shake hands, we drink a little bit of coffee because church doesn't run without coffee, and, and we do all of these things. And then we have this moment where a band gets up on stage and we all stand up together and sing this really strange version of Christian karaoke, right? It's like, hey, let's watch the screen, and some of us wiggle more, and some of us just kind of stand there. And that all happens, and then... We all sit down, and then some guy, some guy, me, stands up and just talks for a little bit, a lot, <laughs> too long, just talks. That's just, it's got to be strange to someone who's lost, right? But did you notice what it said in verse 21? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God <laughs> through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I don't know, but maybe I should say welcome to the most foolish thing you'll do all day long because it's through the foolishness of the message preached through the word of the cross that people are redeemed. Their experiences are redeemed, that God restores the years that the locusts have eaten, that God takes back what once was wrong, where the wrongs done to you and the wrongs done by you can be forgiven and forgotten, and you can be set free from sin and death. I want to just check something out here just for a moment. I just want to ask a simple question. This is a participation moment. I'll need everybody to participate that this applies to, but lots of us in the room have placed our faith in Christ, and I'm one of them, so I'll raise my hand with this. And so when I ask the question, if this applies to you, raise your hand nice and high and, and leave it up. How many of you placed your faith in Christ while you were in a service, not necessarily this church, but wherever you were in a service just like this one? How many of you placed your faith in Christ as a part of it? Raise your hand real high. Let's just see it. Look all over the room. Look at the number of people who in a moment just like this one placed their faith in Jesus. You can put your hands down. I was one of those people too. I was saved in a, in a moment just like this one. And it says right here, verse 21, that it's through the foolishness of the message preached that God saved people. I find that interesting. 
You know, with every relationship, there ought to come a moment where it's just easy for us to talk about the relationship. I can talk about my kids and my wife all day long. That's really, really easy. But I remember when I was a young te teenager and I was starting to date, and even before I was starting to date, the idea that anybody would, my granddad was always, he'd always ask me about the, the girls I was interested in. He'd always ask me about dating. I can remember being at Disneyland with my granddad. I was about seven, and I'm watching the the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride, and I've got my hand on the little bar there, and he takes my hand. I thought he was holding my hand, and I can remember he picked up my hand and he moved it, and I was so embarrassed because when he put my hand down, there was another little girl in line that we had no idea who she was. She was just there with her parents. He put my hand on top of her hand. I freaked smooth out. I was like, seven cooties. Oh, no, that's terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. Wash my hands. i got to get out of this line. I was so embarrassed, and it was just hard to talk about relationships, right? But the older I got, the more experienced I got, the easier it was to talk about my relationship with the people I was interested in, dates that I had. I feel like that's the way our faith works. For those of us who have been believers for a long time, there ought to come a moment where it's easy for you to share the gospel with someone else, to just tell people this is what Jesus has done for you. But you know what? Even if it's not easy for you to share the gospel with someone, even if that's not an easy thing for you to do, well, this right here, it says it's the foolishness of the message preached. The gospel draws, God, draws people to God. I wonder whether it's easy for you to talk about your faith or not, if maybe the best thing you could possibly do for your lost friends and family is get them into a room just like this. How many of you, you saw how many people raised your hand. It was in a room just like this while some foolish guy was doing this foolish thing called preaching that somehow the wisdom of God came through in that message and the gospel was boldly proclaimed and the end result is so many of you who raised your hand went, I need that. God does something miraculous and something marvelous through the preaching and teaching of his word. I wonder what would happen if you would simply get your friends and family into a room like this because you know what they're going to hear? They're going to hear the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? Well, the gospel is beautiful. You know where it starts? God loves people. He's not this distant and, and, and you know, a miraculous. He's not just this distant, uh, unusually hard-to-understand clockmaker who's just wound things up and stepped back and let him go. No, God loves people, and he wants to be intimately involved in your life and the life of his creation. And so that's, that's the gospel, that God loves people. And then there's a reality that we can't ignore, and that's that sin hurts people. It breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with other people. There's, thing, there's things that we've done wrong and we know it. There's things that are wrongs that have been done to us and we've experienced that. And this is that space where even if you're not a church person or a Jesus person, we can agree on this because all of us have experienced the effect of sin. All of us. And that's the gospel. That God loves people. And that sin hurts people. It's broken our relationship with God. It's broken our relationship with one another. And then God, because he loves people, he put on flesh and he lived with us, not distant from us. He stepped into our world so that he could step into your life. Jesus came and he lived a spotless, sinless, perfect life. Jesus died on the cross. That's the word of the cross.
and he rose from the dead. And that's the gospel. And now, for any one of you who places your faith in him, he grants this remarkable gift of repentance where he takes your sin, all the wrongs done to you and all the wrongs you have done, and he forgives them. He nails them to the cross and he makes a way for your salvation and for mine. And for the Jews, they're looking for that experience according to this passage. And for the Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. And it seems like foolishness to both of them. But that's the gospel. But that's what it is. And there are so many people near you right now who found that to be true by reason and by experience. And today, their lives have never been the same. And that could be true for you, too. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to pray together. And after we pray, I'll say amen, and we'll all stand up, and Joe's going to sing for us. But during the time that we're praying, and, and as Joe sings, there's some men and women in the room who will be stationed all over the room. They're people that would be happy to pray with you and pray for you. If you're one of those people who normally prays for people during our services, you guys can go ahead and get up and go to your spot. You can go do that right now. Um, but there's going to be people all over the room, people in the front, people in the back, kind of at every corner. And if you're one of those people who raised your hand a minute ago to say in a room like this is where I placed my faith in Christ, you might need to talk to one of these people and pray with them about friends and family you should bring into this room. Maybe there are people who are just like you that if they just showed up to a foolish thing like this, they might place their faith in Christ. Maybe during this whole prayer time, whether you're talking with someone or whether you're praying right there at the chair, you ought to be praying for your friends and family who need Christ. And then for those of you who are far from God, for those of you, well, according to this passage, for those of you who are perishing, I can assure you that the gospel, it is the lens through which you can understand every experience. It is the reason and the rationale for God's love for you. And so maybe today you need to come to one of these people and say, hey, would you pray for me? I think I need to place my faith in Christ. And I'm not sure what that means. They'd be happy to pray with you and to talk with you about that. Father, thank you so much for this life and this love that you've given to us. I'm so thankful that your wisdom far outshines any wisdom we could know. I'm so thankful that your strength far outshines any strength we could know. And I pray right now for those who are lost, that you would draw them to you that you would help them to see and to understand and to know the love that you've given through your son Jesus, who is the word worthy of our trust. So would you help the people who are here today and the people who are watching online, Father, would you help them to trust in you today? And Father, for those of us who are believed, for those of us who are being saved, would you deepen our faith today? Would you help us to filter every experience, every, no every ounce of knowledge, help us to filter all of that through your word and help us to stand boldly on your word that redeems our experiences and reveals your wisdom. Help us to walk wisely according to your ways. Help us to love one another and to love, uh, love you well. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.